This is our text today, if you want to kind of find it. It's, uh, it's in the, the, the Pew Bible, if you just want to grab and follow along, like right with me, make it real easy. Page 816 will be on that one page all morning. But to start off, <clears throat> Friday evening, uh, we were doing breakfast for dinner, so hopefully that doesn't make any bellies rumble too hard, but we are big fans of breakfast for dinner. And Esri is in the kitchen, and Laura is making French toast, and I'm making sausage gravy, and Esri wants candy. She's already had candy, by the way. Esri's our two-year-old, just in case you didn't know, um, and she's a, she's a, a monster. Um, and she was asking, a cute monster, but a monster nonetheless. Like, but she's, she's like, Daddy, I want candy. And I, I have a tendency to be gruff sometimes. Like, I'll just be up front. But in this moment, I was perfectly, like, uh, perfectly, I channeled all of my maternal instincts. Like, I was gentle. I was soft. I said, baby, we're about to eat. Like, you're about to have French toast. You've had candy. No more candy. No more candy right now. And she looked at me, and her lip kind of came out a little bit. And she just collapsed like a dying star on the floor, (laughs) wailing and weeping and crying out, Daddy, you make me sad with your mouth. (laughs) And I said, well, sorry, I don't know what to do. And as she's weeping and Laura's trying to comfort her and she, she, like the, the mothers of Rama, refusing to be comforted. And finally, as Laura picks her up, she says, I need a nap. And I was like, you and me both, kid. You and me both. Can I get a witness for a nap in this room here today? The Najowskis have brought their baby. It was great to see her. And to see, oh, applause. We know they need naps. Lots of naps. Everyone needs naps. You brought a lot of pain into this room today. I sense a lot of burden. I sense a lot of weight um, and maybe that's me, maybe that's you, I'm not sure, but I, I, I sense that. And one of the great um, messages of Scripture is kind of this invitation to just accept that there's a lot of burdens that we carry around. There's a lot of weight. There's a lot of sickness and sorrow and death. There's a lot of um, insecurity and fear. There's a lot of self-loathing and self-hatred. There's a lot of questions, am I good enough, am I significant enough? And I think our culture really helps pump this into us. Um, and I, I've talked about this plenty, and so, and so maybe this is a bit of a routine, but it just it seems so important because I feel that every time I turn anything on at all, there's this message that somehow I don't have the right stuff. Whether it's stuff, or whether it's a personality, or whether it's a person, or whether it's the way I look, whatever it is, it's not, it's not quite right. It's not quite enough. And so I sense this, this great burden that we're all being like told constantly. Like there's just, you need to do more. You need to be more. And uh, I worry about my kids as they go through school and they're constantly being pulled at the seams at all of these other things. There's so many things to be doing and seeing and keeping up with and it's just all a lot, isn't it? And um, I think today what I want to try to do as we enter into this series, we're talking about a very, something that might, not, this might seem um, incongruous to get together today, but this series is talking about the evidence of repentance. What evidence is there in your life that you truly have set your feet to the path of Jesus? And today, uh, we're going to talk about that as it comes into contact with, uh, with Matthew uh, chapter 11. 
this series, I had planned to be kind of a, um, a robust, uh, highly convicting, challenging you and me on where we have kind of not filled in the work of God and calling us to be better, you know, new material for me, something I don't normally do. And um, I was struck by this passage because it says something a little bit different. And so if you've got there yourself in the Bible here, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to read all of this section. The best way to engage this scripture is probably to, to read it from beginning to end. That's a lot. And I want to encourage you to do that today or tomorrow, sometime this week. Gather your family, read the scripture all in one piece. But I'm going to instead verbally set the stage for you. And the stage for what's about to happen is this. Jesus has been traveling and preaching and John the Baptist, if, you, if you're not familiar with him, we preached about him a, a couple of weeks back. Check our uh, website out and you can kind of hear a little bit about him. But John the Baptist has now been put in prison. And John the Baptist knows that his end is near. He is going to die very soon. And so he sends disciples to Jesus to ask him the most important question that is on John's mind. And that is, Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you the king? Are you the one that that the prophets prophesied, the one that Paul read about this morning? Are you the one that's to come, or are we looking for someone else? Tell us. Don't don't hold back anymore. And Jesus, who just can never answer a question straight on with a yes or no, if you've read Jesus, you know that he's maddening like that. He says to John's disciples, look around and tell me what you see. Do you see the blind healed? Do you see the lame walking? Do you see the poor hearing? And here poor doesn't mean like dirt poor, necessarily just economic poverty, but positional poverty. The people who are not generally the ones we look at and think well of are those the ones who are hearing the word of God preached. And here Matthew is mapping Jesus' words onto Isaiah's words. Isaiah said this long, long ago, long hundreds of years before Jesus. The prophet Isaiah wrote down these words about the one that was to come, and he said this, in that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of the gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see, and the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. What a beautiful image, this This little Polaroid of God stepping into the world. And in Jesus, it's developing. We're beginning to see it. It's it's becoming clear, this grace and love that God has and how he wants to step into the world and to truly transform people. Not just heal, not just change, not just give them a hundred bucks and send them on their way, but transform them into something more. And so... The disciples of John, they go away with this, with this good word, this passage they may recognize it from the ancient prophecies and what they see happening there. And Jesus, uh, in only Jesus-like fashion, turns on the crowds and he asks them the question, why did you go hear John? Why did you Uber yourself out 20 miles to see him in the Jordan, in the wilderness, what did you expect to find out there? Did you expect to find somebody out there who is preaching you a message of, of comfortability? You're fine, everything's good, just stay how you are. And he says, no. No, in fact, John was the one that was to come to prepare the way for me. And as he looks at the crowd, I can kind of envision him with a bit of a heavy heart. 
Because he is doing all of these things. He's revealing the things that the prophets have long foretold. He's opening in many ways people to their own brokenness. And they're not responding to him. And if you look at your Bibles, he, he does a little thing here in verse 17. You can see it's, it's, it's put poetically. And if you're using the, the version that I'm using, it sets, it sets the typeset apart so that you can recognize that what's happening here is a bit of poetry. And poetry doesn't translate real well between languages. Here's a quick, this is, this is the Greek, which I just have to, I always nerd out a little bit with that stuff. You don't become a minister unless you're a nerd. And so here we are. But you can see the endings here are, they match Right? So you can see how these, and then kaiuk, and not, and not, like these things match. This is a poetic structure. And here you have the translation there in 17, which doesn't quite rhyme, but you can kind of catch the poetry. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you, and you did not mourn. So back up to verse 16. What, what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces, and they're calling out to their playmates. This is what we did. We played some pop. You didn't dance. We played some metal. You didn't cry. Like, we, we, we gave you both ends of the spectrum, and you didn't move. And here he was referring to himself and John. John the Baptist comes playing the dirge. He comes saying, listen, you need to repent. You need to change your ways. You need to get yourself straight and in line with the coming of the Messiah. Because when the Messiah comes, he's bringing fire. He's bringing judgment. And you didn't listen. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. And he's eating and he's drinking and he's sitting down with sinners. And he's healing people. And he's saying, son, your sins are forgiven. Get up and enjoy life. Enjoy the the light of God as it comes into the world. And no one's dancing. And it's just this moment where you say, what does it take for God to move you? If he can't move you with warnings of judgment... And if he can't move you with signs of grace, what does it take to move you to him? And so he sets up two great juxtapositions. I know in your Bibles, they'll probably set like two separate paragraphs, but I want you to imagine them right next to each other. Can you do that for me? Imagine them right next to each other, because what we have is two different depictions. One, a depiction of those who cannot hear, and one of a depiction or an invitation to hear. And the first is this, he says in verse 20, Then he began to denounce the cities where his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent, they didn't turn to him. Woe to you, forget you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Forget you, Bethsaida. For if I had done these mighty works in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloths and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And Capernaum, this mighty port city, Will you be exalted to the heavens? No. You will be brought down into the grave. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, you know that word, even if you're not a Christian, you've probably heard that word, that ancient city of vice and violence and degradation. If Sodom had heard and seen what you hear and see, it would have remained until this day, but I tell you it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment in the land of Sodom, than for you. 
It's like some heavy stuff, isn't it? Heavy stuff. One of the interesting things about, uh, about the prophets as they show up is they often step into situations where it doesn't really look that bad. Like, it's not perfect, but it doesn't really look that bad. Jeremiah, one of the great prophets, Isaiah, another one of the great prophets that we've already talked about. But Jeremiah steps into the situation and he starts declaring to them, listen, God's bringing judgment upon you and let you turn and you step into his ways. God is bringing the fury of the Babylonian horde down upon you. You need to turn. And everyone around him is looking around and they're like, well, you know, I mean, they could fix the roads a little bit more. That would be okay. They're saying it's perfect, but we don't deserve that. We aren't that bad. Like, we were founded on godly principles. We were founded by godly people. We're full of godly people. There, it can't possibly be judgment upon us. And again and again, they reject these words as Jeremiah calls out to them, pleads with them, begs them to turn to God, to shut him up. They throw him in a dry cistern, a, a well, so that the rocks can hear his voice and no one else. And that's the kind, of, the kind of brutality of this, is that Jeremiah's walking through telling these people this word from God, and no one believes him. It happens to Jeremiah, they don't mourn or dance. It happens to John, they don't mourn and they don't dance. It happens to Jesus, they don't mourn and they don't dance. It happens to Paul. Paul says, you know very well that the day of the Lord's going to come like a thief while people are saying peace and safety. Look around. It is peace and there is safety. Destruction's going to come on them suddenly. They're not going to be ready for it because they've been looking for peace and safety here and now. And indeed, as we know, many of the cities that Jesus here denounces eventually do meet a very fiery end as the Babylonians come in in 70 A.D., and, or the Romans come in 70 A.D. And, and decimate it. What's interesting is there's this, well, let's go to the next one, the next section here, verse 25, because here, here you have this turn, like we have this description of this fire and, 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 and judgment, and here we have then a description of grace. At that time, Jesus then declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Now, if we set those up against each other, let's do that. So you have these two, these two sections, like divide them in half. You have this one here, where Jesus begins to denounce the great cities. And here you have Jesus' statement about who it has been revealed to. And it might ask or beg a question, like, how is it that they are blind? Like, how are these cities blind? They certainly have been preached to. It's not like they're blind in the sense that God didn't even deliver a message to them. No, God delivered the message to them. He sent his own son to Capernaum to do miracles and to declare grace and to do these things. He, he sent the prophets. He sent all these things. And yet they, the blindness then that Jesus speaks of is not literal, I didn't hear, but rather, I didn't want to hear. That's a different thing, isn't it, altogether? We didn't want to hear. And so we move into verse 27. This has uh, been one of my favorite passages um, most of my walk with Jesus. As Brennan Manning, we're going to listen to him at one point, as Brennan Manning says, when he ambushed me. And I think that it is only now that I may be coming to understand this text. But it says this. Verse 27, so looking at your Bibles, chapter 11, verse 27. All, of the, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. 
And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now that sounds like some like lawyer double talk, doesn't it? Like what? Him and this and this and that and you and me and what's going on? Let's just put it this way. Jesus is saying, I know God. And I am about to reveal God to you. Right? That's kind of a big thing, isn't it? Stop and ponder this. I know God. No one else knows. I know God. And I will reveal God to you. And here is his next word. Let it sit on you. Come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Lots of people have tried to yoke you. Lots of people have tried to teach you. Lots of people have tried to guide you. Lots of people have tried to instruct you. But take me on and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. A stark contrast between these two depictions, isn't it? You have on one hand, the cities. And what do we find in the city? We live in the city, and so this is somewhat maybe even an indictment on us in some ways. But what do we find in the city? You find wealth. He talks about this earlier. Literally, he talks about the people with soft clothes, comfortable clothes. They're in the city. They're not out in the fields working with you. What does he say about the children? The children are burdened. What else do we find in the city? We find, we find culture. We find all that is cool, right? All that is cool. Some of you can instruct me on that. That'd be nice. What are the children? The children are naive. Children know nothing about cool, right? <laughs> they know nothing about cool. There's strength. There's security in the city. There's power in the city. There's police force in the city. There might be a wall around the city. There might be armies in the city. Like, there is a sense in which protection has emerged, and we are going to hold back everyone else, and we're going to watch over ourselves. We're going to protect ourselves. There's security there. But here, here the children are weary, The ones that Jesus invites are the weary ones. The wise and the learned, Jesus says, that uh, God hasn't revealed it to them. That's where the academy is. That's where all the smart people are. They're in the city, right? They've come together in their their kind of environment, and they're, they're, they're tossing back ideas that are going back and forth. There's so much going on there. But he says, but God has instead revealed it to children, and children are not, if anything, fundamentally ignorant, which is not an insult, it's simply a statement, isn't it? Children don't know. Which is why we tell Ezri, listen, you can't have four pieces of candy and French toast. You'll get diabetes, right? <laughs> they don't know. And so they need that instruction. So what is Jesus saying here? Jesus has denounced the wise, the powerful, the learned, the cultured, the cool. He's pulled down all of that. He said, I went to all of these people And they had no interest in my word. They had no interest in it. He said, but there are those who don't function that way. There are those people who know they aren't cool, and they're never going to be. They're not wise. They're not wealthy. They're not the elite. They aren't in those cities, but they are the children. And I say to the children, come to me. When no one else will have you, come to me. When no one else wants you, come to me. When they all say, you don't fit, come to me, and I will give you rest. 
So what does this mean? What does this have to do with our evidence of repentance? This might seem, as I said, incongruous. But I think along the way, I hope that at some point anyway, this has stirred something in you. But for me, this is sort of my own processing, some things that I've been learning about Scripture, about God, about myself. And that is that I frequently uh, find myself very interested and able to keep rules and commands and things that I think I ought to be doing. But I am far less capable of experiencing the full transformation that I think God wants to give to us. That God wants to change something very core about who we are. And so as I read this text, what I am struck by is the invitation. Isn't it great to get an invitation? It's great to get an invitation. How many of you had the experience, I just sort of had like flashbacks, how many of you had the experience of everyone got invited to the birthday party and you didn't? You're eight years old. A couple of you. The invitation, man, to be wanted, to be invited, to have someone say, I want you at my celebration, that's a beautiful thing. And isn't it interesting to say that one of the first things that God reveals to us is that he wants you at his party. Come to me, you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It doesn't seem like there's anything more that he's asking of us. Like There's certainly implications that will abound thereafter. Certain things will drop away and certain Virtues will fill in their place, but it doesn't seem as though he's asking anything more of us, does it? In this moment, it's just an invitation. Why don't you come? And it occurred to me as I was reading this text and thinking these things, it occurred to me that maybe one of the deepest and most important evidences of true repentance is the ability to believe and to accept grace to really and truly believe that God does indeed love you. He does indeed want you. And maybe we don't hear that enough. And so I kind of wanted to say that today. Um, The end of the Bible is an interesting thing. And I want to do two things as we kind of wrap up. The first thing is I want to read this text and let it sit with you a little bit. I think it kind of connects to what Jesus has already said. I want to reveal God to you. And then the first words out of his mouth after he wants to reveal God to us, he says, come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden. Um, But this is the last words of Jesus. Where Jesus, uh, where it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify about these things of the churches. I am the root. I am the descendant of David. I am the bright morning star. I am the first and the last. I'm the alpha. I'm the omega. I'm the beginning. I'm the end. I am coming soon. And so from the text it says in verse 17, the spirit and the bride say come. And let the one who hears that message come. And let the one who is thirsty Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Without price. As the team comes up, we're going to close actually with a video clip that I think closes everything down better than I can. Uh, It's a short snippet from a sermon by a guy named Brennan Manning. 
And we're going to listen to this, and then after that, you can stand and we'll sing. But before, just before we hit play on that, um, outside the entrances, or the exits, I, I guess, at this point, <laughs> since we are exiting, uh, will be our elders, and they would love to pray with you. I would love to pray with you. If you find that the invitation strikes you in some way, and I don't know how it strikes you, but you need to talk with somebody uh, they will be there, and I will be here, and uh, we would love to be uh, with you to pray. So listen to this. In the 48 years since I was first ambushed by Jesus in a little chapel in the Allegheny Mountains of Western Pennsylvania, and in literally the thousands of hours of prayer, meditation, silence, and solitude over those years, I am now utterly convinced that on Judgment Day, the Lord Jesus is going to ask each of us one question and only one question. Did you believe that I loved you? That I desired you? That I waited for you day after day? That I longed to hear the sound of your voice? The real believers there will answer, yes, Jesus. I believe in your love and I tried to shape my life as a response to it. But many of us who are so faithful in our ministry, in our practice, in our church going, are going to have to reply, <clears throat> well, frankly, no, sir. I mean, I never really believed it. I mean, I heard a wonderful, a lot of wonderful sermons and teachings about it. In fact, I gave quite a few myself. But I always thought that was just a way of speaking, a kindly lie, some Christians pious pat on the back to cheer me on. And there's a difference between the real believers and the nominal Christians that abound in our churches across the land. No one can measure like a believer the depth and the intensity of God's love, but at the same time, no one can measure like a believer the effectiveness of our gloom, pessimism, low self-esteem, self-hatred, and despair that block God's way to us. Do you see why it is so important to lay hold of this basic truth of our faith? Because you're only going to be as big as your own concept of God. Remember the famous line of the French philosopher, Blaise Pascal? God made man in his own image, and man returned the compliment. We often make God in our own image. He wants us to be as fussy, rude, narrow-minded, legalistic, judgmental, unforgiving, unloving as we are. In the past couple of three years, I have preached the gospel to the financial community in Wall Street, New York City, the airmen and women of the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, a thousand physicians in Nairobi. I've been in churches in Bangor, Maine, Miami, Chicago, St. Louis, Seattle, San Diego, and honest, the God of so many Christians I meet is a God who is too small for me because he is not the God of the Word. He is not the God revealed by and in Jesus Christ who this moment comes right to your seat and says, I have a word for you. I know your whole life story. I know every skeleton in your closet. I know every moment of sin, shame, dishonesty, and degraded love that has darkened your past. Right now, I know your shallow faith, your feeble prayer life, your inconsistent discipleship, and my word is this, I dare you to trust that I love you just as you are and not as you should be, because you're never going to be as you should be.